This is The Space Shot, episode 342 for April 21st, 2018. Storytelling in the Space Age, part one. I'm John Molix. I've got the first part of my talk from the Cosmosphere this last Thursday. This was the first time I've spoken live in front of this many people, so bear with me on this episode. Without any further delay, here's part one of my talk. We'll have part two and the question and answers tomorrow. A quick note on the audio. My microphone was placed too close to the power adapter for my MacBook, so unfortunately the audio that I captured was not usable. I do have the audio from the live stream, which was taken with an iPad and an external microphone, so apologies if it is a little bit more muffled than usual. There's still some interesting content, so I hope you enjoy it. Can you hear me okay? Welcome to the Cosmosphere and another edition of Coffee at the Cos. I would be remiss if I didn't thank our corporate partners out there, uh, the KU School of Engineering, Clayworks, Disability Supports of the Great Plains, and Dillon's. Uh, without our corporate partners, uh, we would not be able to provide some of the outstanding programming that we do uh, here at the Cosmosphere. How many of you had the privilege of seeing Captain Kelly on Tuesday? That was a great Dillon lecture series. Uh, Captain Scott Kelly uh, spoke at the Dillon Lecture Series on Tuesday uh, in partnership with the Cosmosphere, and that was an outstanding presentation. So today, we are going to have another outstanding presentation. Today's speaker is John Molnix. Uh, John is a great friend of the Cosmosphere. Uh, he's become a personal friend. John is a space history, pop culture, and science podcaster from Loveland, Colorado. He hosts two podcasts, the Space Shot and the Cosmosphere podcast, the first and official podcast of the Cosmosphere. Uh, John has been interested in space for as long as he can remember, and he's been coming to the Cosmosphere for just about as long. Uh, in addition to his work with the podcast, uh, John is also a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. So without further ado, I am going to turn it over to John Lewis. Thanks, John. Good morning. Before we start today and look at the current age of social media, we're going to go back in time about a thousand years. We're going to move forward to the present day. How many of you look up at the next guy at any given night? Probably all of us that were here, right? So thousands of years, we looked up at the same sky. Our ancestors looked up at the same stars we see today. We're going to travel through thousands of years of history today, looking at ancient astrology, astronomy, space, science fiction, robotic missions, human missions, and then we're going to end with a discussion of more discussion of more recent space history and storytelling. The period of, of history when humans first left our planet is an adventure into the cosmos. Cosmos is a uh, exciting time, so thank you for joining us today. Storytelling takes many forms, from purely fictional stories to scientific narratives, histories, biographies, and more. Whether you're a scientist, an academic, a podcaster, a salesperson, a lawyer, 
All of you do some form of storytelling in your daily life. <laughs> it's a uniquely human capability that has helped share and record the cosmos through human history. The constellations and planets we see in the, in the sky all trace out familiar, pa familiar patterns that we saw thousands of years ago. What's changed over the course of human events are the stories behind these points of light and the meanings we ascribe to them. Now, some of the objects we see moving in the night sky are there because we put them there. The ancients saw mythic creatures and gods in the sky. Many thought that Earth was the center of the universe, that everything revolved around us. Comets and eclipses were seen as harbingers of significant events. If you look at this picture, we'll see everybody pointing to a comet up on the top of the screen. We've gone from theorizing about other worlds to actually being able to study them in some respects. We've gone from only walking on our planet to reaching out and touching the surfaces Of, the, of, of other worlds. We have sent robotic explorers to the farthest reaches of the solar system and have sent, have sent pieces of ourselves with them. Before we go any further, let's dive into how the ancients told stories about the stars. The difference between astrology and astronomy is important to examine. The shift from considering astrology an academic field, which it was at the time, to being considered more of a novelty that some of us, I think, still enjoy probably. Um, as part of our understanding of our place in the universe. The belief that the position of a planet, the appearance of a comet, or some other celestial event could affect events here on Earth is a common theme across many cultures. Humans have looked to the stars for an understanding or explanation of human affairs on Earth for as long as we've been able to record history. Astrology was intertwined with science as we know it, although for the ancients it was a perfect, perfectly reasonable explanation of events. Astrology looks at the heavens through the lens of the <clears throat> through the lens of how things like planetary alignments or cosmic events affect the lives of people here on Earth. One of the benefits of doing a daily podcast is that I've been able to read a lot, almost too much sometimes. Um, over the past few months, I've read a couple different books um, about ancient astronomy, and there's one that I want to read from uh, for a quote today. It's called Star Lore of All Ages by William Tyler Walcott. He was an American astronomer and a lawyer, actually, just kind of an interesting combo and he lived back at the turn of the 20th century. And this is from Star War of All Ages. The Assyrians looked upon the stars as divinities, endowed with beneficent or evil powers. Among the Chaldeans, the sky was regarded as a boat, shaped like a basket. The space below was the earth, which was flat and surrounded by water. The Egyptians worshipped Osiris and Isis as ancestors and showed Plutarch their graves and the stars into which they had metamorphosed. The ancient Peruvians thought that there was not a beast or bird in the sky whose shape or image did not shine in the sky. 
They considered the luminaries and stars guardian divinities and worshipped them. The Hebrews had a notion that the sun, moon, and stars danced before Adam in paradise. The Bushmen, or early inhabitants of Africa, regarded the more conspicuous stars as men, lions, tortoises, etc. They believed that the sun, moon, and stars were once mortals on Earth, and that even animals or inorganic substances could get translated into the sky. In New Zealand, heroes were thought to become stars of greater or less brightness according to the number of their victims slain in battle. The North American Indians believed that many of the stars were living creatures and knew that Ursa Major as a bear, which was the same figure known in the Far East. According to Slavonic mythology, the stars were regarded as living in habitual intercourse with men in their affairs. The Eskimos thought that some of the stars had been men and other sorts of different animals and fishes, which was also a mythical belief of the Greeks and Romans. An ancient legend is that there were no stars until the giants of old, throwing stones at the sun, pierced holes in the sky, and they let the light of that orb shine through the holes which we call stars. Thus, we find, as someone's put it, that astronomy, like a golden thread, runs through history and binds together all tribes and peoples of the earth, and that the girdle of the stars we nightly view remains as the most ancient monument to the work of intelligent man, the oldest picture book of all. It's of this golden thread that we're talking about today. The tools with which we view the world have changed over the years, just as the stories we tell have changed the world around as just as the stories we tell have changed as our understanding of the world around us evolves. But the fundamental connection between humans and the cosmos has stayed the same. It's ingrained in our very humanity. How we express this golden thread has also changed. From astrology and practical astronomy to science fiction, space exploration, and then to the present day. There's an innate interest in the stars that calls to us all. These are the topics that we're going to be talking about today, and I hope you indulge me as we work for a couple thousand years of history in just a few minutes. There's two common occurrences that were part of ancient storytelling, comets and eclipses. These are two of the golden threads shared by all cultures in some way or another that we'll be discussing today. Comets were seen as harbingers of doom or as messages from the heavens that pretended great changes. But gradually the stories told about comets shifted. The famous Stoic philosopher Seneca asked, why should it surprise us that so rare cosmic phenomenon as the comets cannot be brought within the framework of regular laws, and that we cannot know their beginning or their end since they reappear after only such enormous periods of time? The day will come when time and the researches of long generations will bring the light to what is now concealed. A single generation is not enough for the solution of such great problems. Let us be content with what we have discovered so far. Those who come after us will add their share to the truth. It's interesting that Seneca's understanding of discovery and time scales is something that we're dealing with today, and it's something I'll return to when we're discussing more present day issues. 
Whenever humans do venture out away from our home planet and eventually into the solar system, the timescales we're going to be experiencing will fundamentally shift the relationship between humans here on Earth and humans in the farthest reaches of our solar system. And coincidentally enough, this was one of the topics that actually came up in the latest episode of the Cosmosphere podcast uh, when we were talking about the effects of the long-duration spaceflight on the human body. It's not just the physical changes, there's a lot of social and psychological as well. Eclipses were another a celestial event that fired the imagination of early humans. Having experienced totality myself in Beatrice, Nebraska last year, I can attest that it is an interesting experience. Had I not known the science behind this event, I probably would have freaked out a little bit just like the ancients did. Even as our scientific understanding of this type of cosmic phenomenon has changed, and it's moved from superstition into the realm of science, we still use words to describe these events as if there was some force behind them. As the understanding of Earth's place in our solar system changed, so did the models that dominated the scientific conversation. The geocentric model of the universe placed humans at the center of everything. We are pretty important after all. The geocentric model <coughs> subjugated all other planets to an inferior position of Earth. This understanding fits in with many of the religious doctrines of the time, since humans were, and still are, the only intelligent life form that we know of. Although at times, <laughs> I think that our intelligence is greatly exaggerated. <laughs> For those of you that are unfamiliar with the geocentric view of the solar system, here's a quick primer. Earth was at the center of everything, and so you can see in these older paintings. The planets revolved, and the sun revolved around Earth. This was the view that Aristotle held, and consequently it was one that dominated scientific conversation for decades, for hundreds of years, actually. Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo contributed to a new understanding of the solar system. But if you see here, it got pretty intricate trying to figure out exactly how the planets moved around Earth in order for the geocentric model to work. It almost looks like a spirograph. <laughs> Accepting that the model that Earth is not at the center of the universe or even the center of our solar system was challenged by many institutions. Scientists observed around the world around them and developed new theories which fit with what we observed. We still had a ways to go before established doctrine was, was overcome and before the masses' conception of the heavens as a, as a domain governed by the scientific laws that explain life here on Earth and not supernatural events like eclipses and comets could be overcome. Let's fast forward a couple hundred years from Europe to colonial America. With increased liter literacy rates, publications like Poor Richard, Richard's Almanac started to find a wide readership in colonial America among, among both men and women. I love this quote from Benjamin Franklin, writing before Richard's Almanac in 1745. For the benefit of the public and my own profit, I have performed this, my 13th annual labor, which I hope is as acceptable as the former. 
The rising and setting of the planets and their conjunctions with the moon have continued, whereby those who are unacquainted with those heavenly bodies may soon learn to distinguish them from fixed stars. All those glittering stars, except for five, which we see in the firmament of heaven, are called stars, because they keep the same distance from one another. And from the ecliptic, they rise and set on the same points of the horizon, and appear like so many lucid points fixed to the celestial firmament. The other five have a particular and different motion, for which reason they have not always the same distance from one another, and therefore they have been called wandering stars, or planets. Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. And these may be distinguished from the fixed stars by their not twinkling. Franklin continues under his pseudonym, Richard Saunders, wishes for your welfare, both temporal and spiritual, and thanks for your, all, all your past favors, being your reader, my obliged friend, R. Saunders. Here we see the beginning of a more practical storytelling, the shift from supernatural to more practical. Let's move forward again, this time another couple hundred years, and back across the Atlantic to Europe, where we find H.G. Wells, one of the fathers of science fiction. His works tell of stories of Martian invaders, of exploring the moon, and in these works we've gone from merely telling stories of how astronomical or astrological phenomena affect Earth to actually interacting with intelligent life forms other than us. <coughs> Jules Verne also wrote science fiction as well, and from the Earth to the Moon, humans are shot out of a massive gun barrel. Probably not the best idea if you want to live. And they explore the Moon. What's interesting, though, about Verne and that story is the capsule that they were sent to actually became a reality about a century later. Just, he didn't shoot it out of the gun. The, 18, the 1800s is when storytelling starts to leave the realm of mythical fantasy and enter the domain of science fiction. There's still fictional stories, but instead of humans waiting around for things to be done to them, humans use science to accomplish the conquering of the heavens. Let's move forward yet again this time the beginning of the 20th century and the dawn of the space age. Science fiction, like amazing stories right there, I'm sure some of you have read that, or at least heard of it, and the publication of magazines like Amazing Stories helped put space travel and science into the mainstream. World War II brought devastation on a global scale that's never been duplicated in human history, thankfully. There was also a corresponding development of new technologies that were used for both military and scientific applications. The V2 that's here at the Cosmosphere is an example of a tool that was initially used to terrorize and demoralize the populations of Nazi the populations that Nazi Germany targeted with this rocket. However, from this terrible weapon came technologies that allowed us to explore the farthest reaches of our solar system. On March 7, 1947, not long after the end of World War II and years before Sputnik, the United States and a group of soldiers and scientists in New Mexico saw something wonderful for the first time. 
These are images captured by a camera that was put in the nose cone of a B-2 rocket, and they're the first grainy look at our planet from space. Just the year before, in 1946, scientists have been using the B-2 for uh, scientific uh, exploration, putting instruments up there, um, just trying to figure out what the environment was like at that altitude. This is the start of our modern age. Might not look like it from those, if you look at those early grainy pictures compared with what you can look at on a smartphone for the weather. At the beginning of the Cold War, science storytelling and, space and exploration saw a blossoming of activity that, that some people think dwarfs what we're seeing today, but I don't think that's the case. As I'll explain later, I think the age we're entering now is the golden age of space exploration. It wasn't decades ago. And what many glamorize, and rightfully so, is primitive by comparison with what we're going to be able to accomplish in the coming decades. Let's call this era of space exploration that we're about to talk about the Kodachrome Age. <laughs> the 1950s and 60s saw humans take the first tentative steps into space. First in uncrewed rockets like <clears throat> First with uncrewed satellites like uh, Sputnik or some of the early Explorer satellites, and later crewed flights with Vostok 1 and Alan Shepard's flight on a suborbital rocket. These sto <coughs> the stories of these intrepid explorers <coughs> was captured by Life magazine and by media outlets all around the world. You look at the pictures of the astronauts as they trained for Mercury, Germany, and Apollo flights, you'll see some of the most iconic images in human history. One of my favorite things about this, if you look closely, their boots weren't ready, so they actually had to take combat boots and spray paint them silver. <laughs> and now that you've seen it, you'll never be able <laughs> During the space race, these astronauts became lionized, like the heroes of old. I won't go into too much detail on this era, because it's a topic that's been covered by many other historians in far greater detail than I could hope to accomplish in today's short talk. During the 1950s and 60s, there were radio dramas like X-1 and TV shows like Lost in Space and Star Trek that complemented and drove the thirst for more space exploration. It was interesting that we entered a time where we could record <coughs> photographically a lot of the newest achievements, and that's something that hadn't been possible in history up until basically the beginning of the 20th century. <coughs> this is a cool picture. I think it's Rusty Swiker and the other astronaut, but they're training in the lunar module. I'm just like the shy. When we landed on the moon, the setting for our story got a whole lot bigger, and we started to conceptualize our place among the planets and our solar system. Since we're in the middle of the century, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about one of the most famous storytellers of all time, Walt Disney. Um, excuse me, how many of you have been to Epcot? 
From his Epcot introduction video to the Tomorrowland TV series episodes Man in Space and Mars and Beyond, Disney used a talent for visual storytelling to show the American people a hopeful and quintessentially American vision of the future. All of these shows had a common theme, what Disney called the exciting living blueprint for the future. Humanity may not be there, be there yet, but many of the dreams he had are on the verge of being realized today. <clears throat> From spinning space stations to inflatable space habitats, to I think the bottom right is a concept for Mars exploration. <clears throat> it was a vision of the future that was exciting and hopeful. There was also some fun cartoons. <laughs> The Tomorrowland series showcased what Dr. Werner von Braun thought was possible for the United States to achieve in a relatively short time. In reality, these dreams were stymied by unsustainable budgets and grandiose plans for technology that just really wasn't there just yet. Has anybody seen the cartoons for this one? I think you can get them on a DVD of Amazon, but they're actually pretty cool to watch if you get a chance. I'll, I'll make sure I put it in the show notes for the podcast. Each video follows a similar format, introducing historical knowledge, and then taking the, the viewer through history, and then going into a little bit of the science as well. One of my favorite things about the entire series was the animation, as evidenced by those pictures there. The Disney illustrators helped create stories that are visually compelling, and they had some scientific value as well. By presenting a peaceful and hopeful vision of the future, in a format that was designed to captivate young audiences, these videos, I think, helped serve to inspire a drive to enter science and technical fields. Let's move back from science fiction to real life space flight now. The most significant chapter in the space race was landing on the moon. It was the culmination of years of work from Projects Gemini and Apollo and Mercury. These missions brought back our first looks of the moon up close, not just as a you know, body floating out in the blackness of space. Armstrong, Aldrin, and other astronauts would walk on the moon and they pushed humanity farther away from Earth than we've still been, unfortunately. Their heroic stories of the Apollo missions show us the results of what happens when we deliver our best efforts to the greatest adventure humanity's ever embarked upon. I hope all of you have a fantastic rest of your day. I appreciate each and every one of you that listen to the podcast every day. I'd be incredibly grateful if you could share the podcast with your friends and family. Tag one of them and let them know about your favorite episode. I'd also really appreciate it if you could venture into the Apple Podcasts app or your podcast app of choice and leave a review for The Space Shot. A steady stream of reviews helps ensure The Space Shot is more visible in the Apple Podcasts app. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. 
You can also connect with me on Facebook. Just search The Space Shot or check out the links in the show notes and you'll find me. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.